Hi guys, Russell here. Um, for, for many, many years, I've always had this sort of deep concern with uh, the way monetary policy was run. It sort of started with Ben Bernanke, but really accelerated after the GFC. Uh, and in a way, you know, what you saw was uh, central bankers in the UK, Europe, Japan, and elsewhere sort of felt obliged to follow this sort of beggarly neighbor policies that uh, ben, ben Bernanke brought in with his sort of QE policies, trying to keep the dollar as weak as possible. Um, and I always had a problem with this sort of policy. It's like, you know, uh, can you really just devalue your way to prosperity? Is this, is this really a policy that makes sense? Um, and, you know, for me, it never made any sense, but it, it does work for business. And in many ways is why, uh, even though you should theoretically look at the global economy today and think, wow, central bankers have been a great success, and yet they're almost universally despised and hated. And, and it's actually not that hard to understand why. Um, now, sort of looking back at it, you know, what if you've been following these posts and listening to what I've got to say, I generally have identified, you know, or said when Thatcher and Reagan came to power was the beginning of sort of pro-capital policies uh, and a sort of shift for, to pro-capital from pro-labor. Now, I've, I've used that more out of convenience than actual reality. Uh, and the reason for that is it's just easier. I didn't want to get into a bog down to argument with other people. Now, what I would say is actually when you look at it a little bit more deeply, for me, really, the pro-capital sort of policies began to be implemented with Nixon. Uh, and how, so Nixon, you might say, how is that possible? So I think the best way to think about it is that when FDR was in power, he instituted uh, in 1939 the federal minimum wage. And the idea was this was to sort of create a, uh, a floor for wages that couldn't fall any further, so stop prices from declining as they'd done in the Depression. And the idea was then to slowly raise this minimum wage to, in essence, create inflation, which is what the country needed at the time. Uh, and so if you look at the American uh, federal minimum wage, you know, it started at sort of about 35, 39 cents an hour in 1939. Uh, and then by, you know, the 1980s, so, you know, 40 years later, it gone up to nearly three bucks fifty, So a thousand percent increase over 40 years, right? And if you've seen my posts subsequent to that, we've hardly, you know, maybe seen a hundred percent increase over 40 years. So a quantum indifference in the, in the way that interest rates, uh, uh, that wage rates have, have risen. So just looking at that, you go, oh, look, Russell, well, you know, as you've always been saying, there was a big break in 1980. I think the thing you have to understand is there's normal wages and real wages. And, you know, what, what does a real wage buy you is always a hard question to answer. But I think, uh, you know, what we can say, well, a sort of very simple and timeless measure is looking at, uh, you know, wages relative to the gold price, you know, as an asset that's existed forever and you can give us very long-term comparisons. So when we look back to, you know, the sort of FDR-Nixon period, what you saw was uh, after World War II and the reconstruction of Europe, the reconstruction of Japan, you started to see gold flowing out of U.S. and back to Europe uh, and, you know, back to Europe mainly. Japan's never really been a big gold place. And so suddenly, uh, U.S. interest rates had to rise to maintain the link to the gold price. Um, and so during the FDR and during the 60s and 70s, what you saw 
was that uh, wages in gold terms were rising. And in fact, by the late 60s in the US, and I've taken this, uh, I've taken this sort of uh, production at work, work as hourly wage in gold. I've sort of taken it off the internet, uh, pricedingold.com. Uh, it looks about right to me. I, I can't see any reason why I would be wrong. And what you can see is sort of in the late 60s, you know, workers' wages in terms of gold were super, super high. Uh, and so you could say that the real wage or workers' sort of benefits were as high as possible. And that problem, at that time, U.S. workers were uncompetitive versus European and Japanese workers. Nixon didn't want interest rates to go any higher. He wanted to get interest rates down. Uh, and so he left the gold standard. And so suddenly you saw wages starting to fall in gold terms. And back in the 60s and 70s, unions were still powerful and knew exactly what was going on. Devaluing uh, the dollar versus the gold was a real wage cut. And so they tried to push for very, very big uh, wage increases. Governments tried to resist this for various sort of measures. But ultimately, what we saw over that decade was wages in the US fell 90%, back to very, very low levels by 1980. And then we saw these sort of pro-capital policies come in. But you see, what was very different about the pro-capital policies is rather than raise wages, the idea was to get other costs down as much as possible uh, through tight monetary policy, tight fiscal policy, but also a range of other sort of policies, free movement of labor, free movement of capital. And it was very successful. Um, the gold price fell uh, substantially from 1980 to 2000. You never saw uh, wages in gold terms go as high as they did but you still saw rising real wages, which is why I think these policies were so popular until 2000. And a lot of this was, of course, driven by ben, uh, uh, Paul Volcker, who, who kept interest rates and kept yields, in bond yields, much higher than interest rates. So you had a real, a very high positive interest rate. Now, of course, uh, as anyone who's been paying attention in 2000s, uh, Greenspan came under the influence of Ben Bernanke, who was on the board of the Fed, who basically argued that low interest rates were great, you need to have inflation, uh, and in essence, you know, reverse this increasing in real wages in gold terms. And they've been basically collapsed under uh, Bernanke's influence and have stayed at low levels ever since. And so, you know, and in essence, by tr- doing this policy, he's, ex- he's forced other central banks in Europe and Japan and elsewhere in Asia also to follow, Australia as well to follow. And so, you know, that graph of real wages in gold terms, you know, driven by very negative real interest rates, explains why central bankers are almost universally despised, except by big corporates uh, and big investors who love them. Uh, everyone else thinks they've done a terrible job. And that is despite, you know, growth being good and, and, and unemployment low. Well, unemployment is, of course, going to be low if you uh, take wages and cut them uh, substantially. Uh, you know, enslaved-driven economies never had any unemployment. Uh, and so, you know, this is, a, this is why central banks are universally despised. Even though they sort of say, oh, hey, look, inflation hasn't been that high and we have full, full employment, you know, but what you've seen is actually wages in sort of real terms. And the same if you look at wages in terms of house prices, wages in terms of the S&P 500, a whole range of measures, basically workers are being shafted. And they're being shafted by central bankers. Uh, now, to be fair, governments haven't really done anything about it, but that is the way it's worked. Now, the thing is, and this is what I'm trying to get at, 
is that I have never in my experience seen a, go- a, a country devalue its way to success. Um, typically what devaluation does is it makes it very easy for corporates to make money and they cut back on R&D, they cut back on training. Uh, and, you know, if, if devaluation really was the key to success, uh, uh, Italy would be the mo- uh, richest and most powerful uh, country in Europe, not Germany. Uh, likewise, Mexico would be uh, far more successful than the U.S. Argentina would be the most successful country in Latin America. Uh, you know, uh, Turkey would be a super powerful country as well. Uh, you know, so it's not really, in my experience, devaluation as a policy is really a lazy, cheap, and typically an ineffective policy. So I've never really understood this central bank uh, 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 obsession since sort of 2000 to devaluing. And in fact, if you look back into the 1990s, you know, central bankers then knew that devaluation was a, a terrible, terrible idea and tended to fight devaluation through raising interest rates. Um, and of course, like I said, Benin Benenke changed that sort of line of thinking around. Um, and one of the things that I find, you know, for me, when I manage money, what I like to do, particularly with emerging markets, I only like to invest in emerging markets which have an appreciating currency. And that has been very hard to find over the last sort of 10 years. And that's why you sort of see emerging markets have been a very poor place to invest for the last 10 years. And also, when I look at uh, a currency like the Indian rupee, even though I actually have just got back from India, I like what I saw in India. Uh, the Indian rupee remains a weak and a weakening biased current currency, which is why I've always had found it hard to get very excited about India. A strong Indian rupee would make me far more enthusiastic uh, on the idea of investing into India. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm yet to see that. So, you know, what is the point of this presentation? Where am I getting at? And here is the rub. China has actively gone out to avoid devaluing. It has actively gone out and, you know, encouraged policies that look to me to be promoting real wage growth. Uh, not just nominal wage growth, but real wage growth. And when I look at the countries that have been successful, countries that have really done well, are countries that have focused on gaining real wages up. Uh, so one of the reasons why Switzerland, for example, is one of the richest nations in Europe is their currency has tended to be a very strong good currency. So real wages have tended to, to do well. And so, you know, when I'm looking at Chinese policy and looking at how the Chinese currency has remained strong, and then you look at the performance of sort of Chinese consumption proxies like luxury, you know, I sort of look at this and the currency world is sort of saying, hmm, maybe China is winning, uh, which is sort of, a, you know, something I've implied maybe previously. But I'm thinking, you know, as long as they can keep their currency strong, you know, China uh, is sort of slowly but surely gaining more and more power over a whole range of different uh, industries. And we can also see that it's starting to affect politics as well. Anyway, I mean, the key point for me, as I said, is like currencies actually indicate a strong political dimension to economic policy. And what I would say at the moment is that I think Chinese policy of focusing on real wages is successful. We're starting to see signs of that being uh, copied elsewhere, but it has been one of the signs why I think China is doing much better than what your average American commentator is is giving it credit for. All right. I hope that made sense. Uh, Stay safe and we'll talk soon. Ciao.